You're listening to the Denver Real Estate Investing Podcast, where it's all about helping you grow your Denver real estate portfolio. Here's your host, Chris Lopez. You're listening to episode six in the Ultimate House Hacking Guide for Denver. So in this episode, we talk about how to analyze a deal for a house hack. And so we look at analyzing deal while you're living there and then once you move out. So we'll go through the basics of using the spreadsheet. We'll go through some assumptions so you know some good assumptions put in there while you're doing the initial analysis of the property. And then we go through a room-by-room house hack in Aurora and then an Airbnb house hack in Arvada. So lots of spreadsheets, lots of numbers on here. Definitely uh, read chapter six in the book, check the show notes, or if you wanna see the play-by-play on the spreadsheets, go watch the accompanying YouTube video, which you click the show notes, will be, I think, at the bottom of the blog post. All right, so here's the show with myself, Joe Massey, and Jeff White. Enjoy. So today we'll be talking about how to analyze deals. And you'll notice one of the common themes we have throughout this series. There's the while you're living there and there's the after you move out. So we'll talk about doing deal analyses on both, but as we've talked about in previous modules, we all three of us feel that the after you move out analysis is by far the most important aspect when it comes to buying a house hack property because you're going to live there for one or two years, and you may have the, have the rental for 10 to 30 years. So having it as it makes sense as a long-term rental property, as a building block to help you build income, get cash flow, increase equity, and buy more properties, that's much more important than why you're, you're living there. So I'm going to pull up some spreadsheets. Uh, give me a second to get them over. And... So we got two properties we'll walk through today. Uh, one's going to be a room-by-room house hack rental uh, in Aurora. And we'll go through numbers about while living there and after moving out. And then we've got one that is a house hack with some Airbnb income while they're living there and a long-term model afterwards. So we'll run through both of those. And uh, before we start diving the numbers, um, Jeff, let me start with you. You got any like high level points or tips to share with people on the do's and don'ts of analyzing properties? Uh, yeah, I mean, be, I would say start, <laughs> be more conservative with your numbers. Assume uh, more just in general. Like, don't, if you think in like you're going to rent by the room and it's going to be, oh, I'll get $800 for these rooms because I'm in a great location or they're nice rooms. I would scale that back and start be you know start seven hundred. Be the conservative one, and then if you actually can't get eight hundred bucks a room, you know congratulations, you you know you you're great, you know you're better than you thought, and then your numbers are even better. But start be more conservative to start, so it's more realistic number um, than just looking at it saying uh, being aggressive with your assumptions like oh I'm in a you know I'm with uh, two blocks of downtown Denver I'll, I should get this. Because you know you might just overestimate, and then it'll drive um, these numbers that might not be realistic. So it's better to be more realistic in the front end, and then surprise yourself in the back end. And the mistake I see is that it's not on the rental side; it's people being very light on the operating expense side. They think, "Oh, yeah, I'll make all this rental income, and I have no expenses." And I see that on the MLS, you know, from people selling properties, see that people underwriting that way. Make sure you put in realistic underwriting numbers for your expenses as well. 
So we are, uh, what we have on the screen right now is actually a copy of Joe Massey's spreadsheet. Uh, if, I know a lot of people are going to be listening to this on the podcast. So if you cannot see it, do not worry about it. We're going to just do a very high level uh, talking about numbers and some assumptions. It's not meant to be a click-by-click tutorial. Now, if you need that click-by-click tutorial, go to the website, denverinvestmentrealestate.com, click on Spreadsheets. And you'll see it under rental property spreadsheet on there. Uh, we got a couple YouTube videos, one on house hacking, one on long-term rentals, one on the other tabs on there, which is a more of a tutorial on there. And also you can download the spreadsheet off of there as well. Or if you can't find it, email us. We're happy to send it to you as well. So just putting in the very high-level details in here. And guys, I'm going to run through this, so definitely interrupt me as we, as we get rolling through this. Uh, I selected this as a primary residence. Since Joe's spreadsheet allows you to designate a primary residence versus investment property. And Joe, why do we have that in there? Why do you have that uh, field to choose between the two? Um, because it's going to help you make good choices on how much money you're putting down. So if you select, in fact, go ahead and do this for folks that are watching, go ahead and select it as an investment property and uh, leave it with 5% down. It's going to give you a little warning that says, hey, you know what? You're going to need to put more money down. Um, minimum down payment for an investment property is 15% for a single family home. So it's got some things built in there just to keep you from you know, making an error that is going to give you results uh, that aren't realistic. Um, go ahead and change it back to uh, primary residence. And if you would, Chris, change your down payment to 0%. So, oh, I thought it would give you an error. There we go. See, look, got to add that in there. Um, but 5% <laughs> should be your minimum down for, for primary um, I guess, you know, you know why I took that out was for VA. VA loans. Um, yeah, that's right. I remember taking that out a while ago, but it's, it's got some little things in there that'll help you. Um, if you're putting in something that's not realistic, it'll give you a warning. So that's why that's in there. Yeah. So it's really nice. I mean, it's just one of those things that helps you like make sure you're not putting stuff incorrect and helps just, you know, guide you along the way. So what we did, this is actually a client that, um, I was a real estate agent on, Joe was a lender on, and it's a property, a single family home, five bedroom house in Aurora. We closed on in quarter one of 2019. So these are, you know, realist, these are the real numbers on here from the transaction and also on some operating data from the property. So the client put down 5%. He opted to pay the mortgage insurance monthly. And I'll talk about this here because uh, when he went under contract, me and my team, we sent the contract over to Joe and his team, and then Joe reviewed it. They got our client in there within a couple of days, and they sat down and said, hey, here are the options for prepaying PMI. Here's some options for buying the points, uh, buying down points. All this stuff we talked about a few modules ago, and this is actually exactly what we did. So it made the most sense for him just to pay monthly because uh, I don't know the exact number, but I recall it was a very low monthly mortgage insurance amount. Purchase price was $375,000. His acquisition costs were just about $7,500. So this includes inspection, appraisal, all the closing fees, title fees. And in this case, he also did buy the interest rate down some as well. And that's why the acquisition cost is higher uh, than we've seen some other properties because he decided to buy the interest rate down. His loan cost, uh, that's a set fee that Joe charges, $1,540. So if you put 5% down of 375, he had his down payment percentage was $18,750. Add in the acquisition cost and loan cost, about $9,000. And then we had a $1,000 seller credit for something on the inspection items. So all in, his cash to close 
between his earnest money and his final wire in to the closing table was $26,765. So very, very low cash to close. Now, Joe, if I came to you and wanted to buy this property, but I wanted to buy as a landlord, what would be the ballpark I'd be putting down at the closing table? You know what? I don't even have to give you a ballpark. Scroll up and I'll show you exactly what it would be. Oh, that's actually, that's a good idea. (laughs) (laughs) Change that to investment. Change that to 15% down. There you go. Minimum 64265 Yeah. And I just wanted to do that just to, again, highlight the difference in, you know, one of the sweet things about house hacking is how low and cash to close it really is to buy, you know, uh, great assets here in Denver. So I'm switching things back to what we had, primary residence, 5%. His interest rate was 3.875%. And these are all fields we plugged in here. So here's where we're going to get into some meaty parts about the house hacking. So this is a a five-bedroom house, and four people can definitely live there comfortably. So the owner was going to live in one unit and run out the other three bedrooms. And he was doing that to get everything up and running, uh, get it filled in, and those three roommates are going to basically pay for most of his expenses. And then once everyone's in there, he's going to see if he can get a fifth person in there to see if people can live comfortably in there or not. Just because of the way it's set up, it's a great set for four people. He says five people might be pushing it. So he got... Um, he's And this is the numbers for once he moves out, and we can change it for why he lives there as well. But he got three leases at $800 in each, no problem. And he lives in the fourth bedroom. And so we're assuming once he moves out that he'll rent out for $800 as well. And what his plan was, um, we put a vacancy at 5%. And that's because he felt very confident that he had his leases set to turn or come due at the exact same time when uh, the nearby school, he lives near a medical campus in Aurora, when the nearby programs and schools out there, when they come due, you know, I don't know the exact year, but two semesters a year. He said, if you're timed with that, you'll have a low vacancy. Now, Jeff, when I initially underwrote this, I I used a much higher vacancy, um, but he was very comfortable with a lower vacancy. When you're doing your room by room rentals, what do you use your vacancy? Uh, I use 3%. Three to four percent, really? Yeah. And you found that to over your few years of doing, have you found you found vacancy oh, to be yeah. that low? Yeah. The reason is as long as you're on top of it. So, for example, if you know the lease is ending, the person's moving out. Um, like my current place, someone's moving out on April thirtieth. Um, I started looking for the other person, the new person, in March. So you start looking sooner, and there's so much interest for renting by the room as long as you price it right that uh, you should have no problem. Um, filling that vacancy and having zero, like shooting for zero vacancy, shooting for zero vacancy. Um, but the reality is, sometimes you'll have little gaps. They might move out in the middle of the month, or um, you know, it might take that person that wants to move in wants to wait like to the middle, you know, first week or something. So you have like little tiny gaps, so that increases your vacancy. But yeah, that's the as long as you're on top of it, you can keep it low. But five percent is a good number. <laughs> Good. So yeah. I always interrupt my properties at three to five percent, depending on a few factors. Joe, what do you use for this? I like to use five percent as well. Just you know, I've got a property manager, so I don't manage it as tightly as Jeff does. Um, I I know my property manager is on top of it, but I like to use five. It's pretty conservative. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I certainly think that with active management, like Jeff does, you can have that number lower. But I like to do five because I'm not. 
hyper focused on it, frankly. And so going down the spreadsheet, uh, we selected no for property management because we talked about um, you know finding a property management room by room. Uh, very few and far between here in Denver, so we selected no, and we come back and change this number later. And we put an eight percent for monthly repairs and re- or for repairs and reserves maintenance. So that's eight percent of the rents he collects. So as a really rough rule of thumb. Using 8% is a really good ballpark to start with, and you want to fine-tune from there based on the property type, location, age, condition, and all that. And so basically, 8% works out to be about one month's worth of rent for the entire year. Now, Jeff, what do you use for your repairs and reserves? What figures do you use for your properties? Yeah, so I just do the same thing right here. So for maintenance reserves, uh, I use... Definitely. It, so it depends on the year, how old the property is and the updates. So if it's like before 1990, so like most uh, ranch style houses were built in the 50s and 70s, some 80s, um, at least for house acts. Um, so I do apply closer to 10%. And then if it's newer, built in the 90s, 2000s, um, then you can apply it lower to 5 to 8%, just because. Um, it's a little bit less maintenance because you have newer stuff. Um, doesn't it's not as high because it's uh, a little more updated, and you don't have to worry about as many things. Like for example, the furnace isn't like thirty years old, probably not. Um, so you don't have to worry about the furnace going out as soon as like an older place, um, and just slightly newer, a little bit better shape. So that's where. Newer, older properties, and some older properties are better shaped than newer properties. So just something to weigh out from the inspection report. Like, okay, how much work is needed here? And then factor that into your numbers. Yep. And that's where it comes in. You just have to look at the age and condition of the property. Because as Jeff said, a lot of those ranchers are the 60s and 70s. We buy a lot of those. And sometimes we buy properties that are completely rehabbed. Well, if it's a new furnace, a new AC, new mechanical systems, all this other new stuff, new roof, new windows you're going to have lower reserves than average. But over the long run, 8% to 10% is a really good, realistic, and conservative number to use. So we'll come back and play with this in a minute and actually bump up to 10%. And the rest in here is pretty straightforward. Uh, Taxes are uh, just over $2,200 a year. His annual property insurance is about $1,000 a year. And I mean, Joe, you see a lot of insurance rates. That's definitely lower than what you'd normally see for a house, right? For an owner-occupied house? That's pretty low. I would guess that this property probably has a new roof. Um, that is one of the most biggest indicators that I see in Denver right now. If you've got a roof that's less than five years old, you're going to get a big break on your property insurance. And it's just due to the frequency of hail claims that we have now. If you've got a roof that's you know three layers and 25 years since it's been replaced, your insurance is probably going to be two grand, $2,200 a year. Um, so I remember this one and it was... Uh, you know, recently updated, um, which you can tell because there was no initial uh, repair costs and uh, did have a newer roof. But yeah, that is a super low rate. So you definitely want to not estimate $900 for your insurance. Um, probably when you're initially looking at it, figure $1,800 a year. And then as you get into the inspection and you learn, hey, it's new roof, new updated mechanical, new electrical. Okay, maybe we can get some discounts from, you know, State Farm or Allstate or whomever, then get your quote to plug it in. But I would not certainly would not start with that $900 as my initial estimate. 
Agreed. Um, so water, and so this is some real operating data from the last few months he's been running it, and we just averaged out for a year, about $100 a month for water and sewer, so about $1,200 a month, or I'm sorry, $1,200 a year. As we talked about, all the utilities are in his name, and then he just charges that as part of the monthly rent, as Jeff talked about in the previous module. Trash is just under $300 a year. Uh, Excel, it should looks like about $1,500 for a year. And then, as we also discussed earlier, he provides Wi-Fi um, for all the tenants, so it's about $600 a year, about $50 a month. So any numbers that we're missing on there, guys, before we look at the results? <clears throat> I don't think so. I think it looks great. Yep. Cool. So again, this is we're going to talk about these numbers. This is assuming that he's already moved out, and we'll come back and start playing with some numbers here. So I'm clicking over the next tab on Joe's spreadsheet, and the numbers come out on, uh, you know, it just re- states the numbers and actually shows you, adds up the rents, adds up the expenses, subtracts out the expenses, subtracts out the mortgage payments, does an estimate for the mortgage insurance, uh, and then it gives you the annual cash flow before taxes. So right now, once he moves out, he should be making about $4,971 a year. Jeff, what's your reaction? That is a solid number because yep. it's uh, what uh, low down payment. And he could, it sounds like um, if I um, turn that annual monthly payment and the PMI into monthly, he's, you know, he's pretty much covering it while he's living there or close to it. Um, and then when he moves out, he's cash flowing. So that's an excellent deal. And actually, I know this. I mean, um, his mortgage insurance is lower than the estimated 128 in the spreadsheet. So it should actually be better cash flow. Oh, nice. Joe, what's your reaction? You see a number close to 5,000 cash flow. You know what? I think for putting, what do we put down? $26,000. That's great. Yep. Look at the cash on cash return. That's 18.6%. Um, I don't know about you, but I don't get that in my 401k. Certainly not recently. Um, so I think that's a terrific return just straight on the cash on the cash flow. But then I know we're going to talk about the ROIQ. Looking at the details down there, I think this is a, this is a tremendous deal. And this was not something that the client had to go out and knock on 500 doors. He didn't send, have to send out a bunch of mailers. Remembering from prior uh, modules, you know, the, the where to find the deal quadrant, this was on the MLS. This was on the shelf right there for anybody to pick up and super good deal. And so Joe referenced the return on investment quadrant, which is a great visual guide from our, uh, our buddy, James Orr, uh, shows you the four ways to make money in real estate. Uh, we will not go through all those details now, but Joe and I teach classes on there. There's an in-depth blog post and podcast website as well. So you want the details on that, definitely go listen because that's a, a solid hour class right there. Uh, that should definitely uh, open your eyes as to how you make money in real estate. And it's way more than just cash flow. So I'm going to go back to the spreadsheet and play around with some numbers here. So we're estimating, we'll save $5,000 now in cash flow once he moves out. So let's go back and change the rent to while he's living there. So he's doing $800 a month in rent. So four times eight is 32. If we subtract out one bedroom, that's $2,400 in rent from three roommates. We'll change nothing else. Oh, well, shoot. Now he's got a negative cash flow of $3,400. Joe, what's your reaction? Um, you know, $3,400, if that's the cost for him to live in that bedroom for the course of a year, uh, I think that is a great deal. That's what, just over or just under 300 bucks a month. 
Yep. I don't know anywhere else in Denver that you can live for $300 a month. My mortgage payment certainly isn't $300 a month. Yeah, um, Jeff, would you rent him a room for $300 a month? Oh, hi. that would be, that'd be like a half a room. <laughs> Maybe like a closet. <laughs> but no, that's, that's, that's uh, yeah, 300 bucks a month. And then all the other uh, tax benefits, other returns, uh, return on investment he's getting besides pure, this is only pure cash flow. So there's other thing, other benefits he's getting. Um, and then when he goes to buy the next property, um, it'll be that much easier. And then he will get that 5,000 or more. Yeah. So I'm going to go back here and go add in the $3,200 a month in rent because we wanted to show you the numbers while he's living there. So he's built, he owns an asset, he's building wealth through equity, and he's living for, you know, we'll just say $300 a month. Great, great, great play. And now when he moves out, his plan is to keep running it room by room for at least for the first couple of properties he does just to build the cash flow, help get that momentum going. And then, you know, three, four, five years down the road, he's going to do a long-term rental because he's hopefully kind of gotten that initial push over with. But he wants to do the room by room rentals to maximize cash flow. So if we bump up uh, the maintenance and reserves to 10% from 8%, we'll see what that makes the cash flow drop by $700 a year from $4,900 to $4,200. So not a big deal. I mean, if you're uh, having that much cash flow positive, I think everyone's going to be happy. Now let's go back and look at this as a long-term rental. I'm going to change it back to 8%. And then for a long-term rental like this, a five-bedroom Aurora, I mean, $2,500 is going to be a pretty conservative number on here, at least in today's market. Uh, maybe a little bit more. Um, but in three or four years, once he turns it to a long-term rental, rents will most likely have gone up slightly as well, but we'll use today's rental numbers of 2,500. Well, now it shows a negative cash flow of twenty of $2,337 a year. Joe, does that sound good or bad to you? I think that's okay. You know, he's basically subsidizing uh, the ownership of the property. Um, but if you look at the ROIQ, so cash flow is not great, right? He's putting in 200 bucks a month, but he's still getting a 96% return. So cash flow is not great, but he's subsidizing the cash flow to get appreciation benefits, debt pay down, depreciation, et cetera. So, and then the headache factor is less, right? So I think it's still pretty good. I do too. And some of the things to think about on here is, you know, this is going to be three or four years in the future, most likely rents will probably have gone up since then. And $2,500 a month is a, you know, realistic on the conservative side for what he could get. Plus, you know, you got to keep in mind, he put 5% down. 5% down is not meant to be an investment loan. It's meant to be a primary loan. Um, so he's got PMI. The PMI on the spreadsheet's $1,500 a year. Well, when that drops off, uh, you know, what, a few years down the road or nine years down the road, well, that's going to be $1,500 less he's paying. Well, now he'll only be, you know, what, negative $50 a month with very conservative underwriting for long-term wealth building, that's not a bad play. And so we'll talk more in the next module on your personal finances. Is this one the balance you have to figure out? Some people say, hey, no matter what, I never ever can have a negative cash flowing property, even for a day once I move out of the property, I just can't. Um, and that's fine. And this we have to learn your risk tolerance. Uh, personally, you know, if I was doing this, I would be fine with a slight you know, with tight numbers like this, because this is very close to break even with our conservative underwriting. And the balance here is if you have high leverage like this, is make sure you keep cash in the bank. 
Because we can run numbers all day long. And if I got $100,000 to spend and I buy one investment property and I put $100,000 all in, but I have zero left in the bank, but I'm making you know, $3,000 a year in cash flow, but Jeff buys a house hack and he puts 25 grand down and has 75 grand in the bank. And when he moves out, it's a break-even property. Who's better positioned? Who do you think's better set up, Jeff? Me or you? That'd be me. <laughs> Why? Yeah. Because um, I have, you know, if things go wrong, if takes, you know, what if the tenant trashes a place and it's twenty thousand dollars of work? What do you do? You have to pull out, you know, get credit cards and high, very high levered debt. Versus me, I could just cover it just like that. Worst case scenario, or if you know the the tenant leaves and something like right, I can't do showing or can't show it for six months, and then six months of vacancy. I could cover the mortgage for those six months versus um, you would have trouble or you have to take out a lot of debt um, to cover that and then put yourself in a terrible financial position. I agree with that. What are your thoughts, Joe? I agree 100%. Yeah. So, okay. Any final thoughts you guys want to say about this property before we move on? I think the one thought that I want to throw out there is this is a real property. This is not like a unicorn. These are all over. If you go back a couple modules where we talked about where to find properties and the deal quadrant, um, this is not, we have dozens of these. This is not something that this is, we're just showing you, all right, this is the very best deal we've ever seen. As a matter of fact, we've taken out and not shown the very best deals that we've ever seen because they're too unbelievably good. Um, this is an average deal. This is an average transaction that we see nothing crazy. Client did not have to do some sort of crazy financing, didn't have to go out and do something crazy to get the property, didn't need a ton of renovation, didn't have to get a hard money loan and then renovate the property and refinance it. This was regular. This was a regular transaction on the MLS, turnkey, ready to go. That's the the main point I want to drive home on this is this is regular, realistic, and there's more out there. And that's, that's what I was going to say too, is like we close on these deals pretty much every single month. Like it's a good deal, but it's, it's, it's a completely doable for people that just follow the process. Yep. All right. So I pull up the next spreadsheet. I want to do a quick reminder uh, that we do a lot of deal analyses now on the website through the Denver Investment Real Estate website. Um, and you know, what happens is great. We look at a deal in quarter one of 2020. Well, if you're listening to this in 2021, a lot of the concepts still apply, but we'll see some more recent deals. Well, make sure you go to the website and find the deal analysis section, and you'll find it on there. And that's going to list all the recent properties we've done. And you can sort them by house hacking, by rental, by time, by multifamily. So if you're listening to this in the future, go to the website and you can always see updated deals so that we can see what the current market is like. <clears throat> Excuse me. All right. So this next property. Actually, let me just make sure I got the right one. Yep. So this next property is a, it's another real transaction. And this property we actually closed on about a year ago. So this was in quarter two of 2019. Um, and so I wanted to pick one a little bit older because we had some really good operating data for their Airbnb. So it's a single family house um, in Arvada with a great space that they can do some Airbnb with. That's got a, a separate entrance, a little kitchenette in there. And just a, it's a, it's a great setup for the house hack and a long-term rental. So they put 5% down. They chose to pay their monthly mortgage insurance and they got the purchase. They got, they bought for $435,000. Hey, Chris, and, can I interrupt you for one second? Yeah. 
scroll up just a little bit. I want to point out something. Um, where you've got number of units is two. This is not a true duplex. This was a single family, I believe, with uh, an accessory dwelling unit. Is that right? Correct. Okay, so I just want to point that out that it's not a uh, it's not a multi unit that would have required fifteen uh, percent down. This is still for financing purposes. This is still a single family home in our eyes, and so the client was able to do this with five percent down. So for people watching, I didn't want them to see that and say, "Well, wait a minute, I thought duplex was fifteen percent down." This is a this is a, a single family with an accessory dwelling. Great point, and I and just so you guys know, I did that so I could separate the rental income from the main house with the ADU. Yep, perfect. Um, so we did five percent, or they did five percent down. Purchase price of four thirty five, and I recall just so everyone knows, like this was a property of the bidding war. We went, we beat other people, and we went over asking. Is that a sin, Joe? No, not at all. I think yeah. it's a great way to purchase properties, actually. That's the reality of the Denver market right now. Is like a lot of times you have competition. That's not common to go over asking. So we had four thirty five. Their acquisition cost about fifty seven fifty seven hundred dollars for all their closing costs. Um, they had one thousand five hundred forty dollars in loan fees to Castle and Cook. So their down payment was just under twenty two thousand dollars. That's five percent of four thirty five. Now we had uh, two thousand dollars in seller credits for some inspection items. And I could not recall if they all, but just seeing the typical stuff on inspection items. And they spent about $5,000. This was on materials, and they did most of the labor themselves. They, it's a, a young couple. They're handy. They like swinging hammers. And they needed to do some updating and remodel to the mother-in-law area uh, to get it you know, prime for Airbnb. Because, again, they were, they're in the Airbnb, and they wanted to make it a really great spot. So they spent about $5,000 plus a bunch of weekends doing it. So all in, including the repair cost, was about $32,000. So really, really low down payment amount. And when we say all in, we like to include the initial repair cost because if you have to spend that money to get the rents we're talking about, that's when you have to put in the property. So that's something that we do to be realistic where a lot of other people, they don't include that. So Joe, I don't get this. Their interest rate's at 4.5%. They closed on a year ago, but this last property we talked about was at 3.75%. Why a higher interest rate? Hey, interest rates change every single day. Sometimes they're better, sometimes they're worse. Um, back a year ago, rates were certainly higher than they are now, uh, certainly higher than they were in the first quarter of this year. So uh, that's an important thing to keep in mind. And I think we'll talk about in later modules is when you buy the property, interest rates are going to be wherever they're at for that particular time. And then we're going to look at, you know, do we buy down the rate? Do we pay the mortgage insurance up front, et cetera? Um, but then one of the considerations will be down the road, do you refinance it? You refinance it to get a lower rate. You refinance it to get cash out. Um, you know, tons of variables on that. And so, looking at the rental income right now, I got unit one the spreadsheet. This is to show the Airbnb income, and it averaged about nineteen hundred and fifty dollars a month over the last you know ten months they had this operating. And so that's through the you know the the high, the peak season, the slower season. So just under two thousand dollars a month in gross um, income. After Airbnb fees, uh, they, at, for the most part, were doing a lot of cleanings themselves in between tenants because they wanted to save money as well. So, you know, they are definitely getting some more income and they're definitely minimizing their expenses. There's no Airbnb property manager, which will typically charge 15 to 25% of your rents to manage your Airbnb. And they're doing most of the cleanings. Now, when I got this data from them, they were just starting to switch to hiring cleaners because they were getting tired of doing that themselves. Surprise, surprise. Um, but I want to use some numbers on here for that. 
And the main house, which was a like a three bedroom, two bathroom house, they had uh, uh, one of their siblings, uh, one of their sisters, live with them, and they were charging seven hundred dollars uh, a month for her to rent that room. Now they said, "Hey, we know it's a hundred or two hundred dollars below market rent, but you know it's one of those things. It's family. It's a good setup for both of them, so they're not looking to like you know maximize the rent dollars. It's what made sense." So while they're living there, and this was between a long term rental. And the Airbnb, they're making about twenty six fifty a month in rental income. We put vacancy at three percent, uh, just because the Airbnb had the average, and Airbnb definitely has a much higher vacancy than normal. That's already factored in the rental income. Um, and then property management, no, we put aside eight percent for repairs and reserves to do good underwriting. Taxes just under fifteen hundred. Property insurance just under fifteen hundred. Water and sewer just under seven hundred. A note from the owner: uh, it's very low because they did not turn the sprinklers to water the lawn, so that'll definitely go up in the future. Trash is two hundred bucks a year, and Excel is about um, fifteen hundred bucks a year. So going over the cash flow tab here. Well, while they're living there, it's a native cash flow of four thousand bucks a year. Jeff, what do you think about that? Well, when they're living there, it's still a great deal. Was that three, three hundred thirty, three fifty a month, three thirty a month to live there in a uh, old town, Arvada, a nice like, and they just have to share it with a sibling. Um, that sounds pretty good deal. Like, and and building equity, getting all the other benefits of owning real estate. Um, I would take that all day long. Joe, what about you? What are your thoughts? I agree 100%. If it costs you $350 to have your own home um, and you're just sharing it with a sibling and you're renting out that up opposite unit, I think this is terrific. I mean, yeah. I don't, again, I mentioned this earlier. My, my mortgage payment's not $350 a month. Um, shoot, that's, I mean, that's basically just the taxes and the insurance. You know, that's, that's just a, a smoking good deal. So let's look at the spreadsheet. Uh, let me find it. The spreadsheet for once they move out. So now I flipped over a different spreadsheet. We get all the same assumptions in here, cost, down payment, interest rates, all this stuff. Now, once they move out and they're going to play by the rules and not Airbnb, since it's not their primary residence, but they'll run out the main house, they'll run out the mother-in-law suite, all separate. So the main house should rent between $21 to $22 a month. And we put in $21 a month to be conservative. The uh the ADU should run out for a thousand to eleven dollars a month. We put in a thousand dollars a month to be conservative. So both of those might be a hundred or two hundred dollars higher. But again, as we talked about earlier, it's best to be conservative. Plug in our typical numbers, um, and then we put eight percent for reserves. We removed the electric bill because that will be something paid by the tenant, but the owners will continue to pay for water and trash, and the taxes and insurance should all stay about the same. Well, now when they move out. It'll be a positive cash flow of just under $2,400 a month after all their expenses, after their mortgage payment, and after their mortgage insurance. $2,400 a month for a 5% down property. I mean, that's a thumbs up in my book. What do you guys think? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, $2,400, that is not life-changing money um, to make every year. That's $200 a month. But scroll down a little bit and look at the total returns you're getting. 
You're getting appreciation, debt pay down, depreciation. You're making $34,000 a year on this property and you only invested 26 or, tw- or 31,000 rather. You only invested 31 to make 34 to so making 106%. I can assure you my 401k does not get that. But if anybody's 401k does get that, I would love to hear about it. Um, I don't know any other way to make these types of returns other than this strategy. Yeah. And along those lines, uh, yeah, it's like they're buying a sweet duplex uh, for 435000 And then I know what we talked about before is most duplexes are overpriced and really run down. This one sounds like it just needs a little bit of work. Um, and then getting positive cash flow after they move out, that's a win in my book. Uh, and that cash flow, again, is only one uh, retur- part of the return. And and with only two tenants to manage, that's I would take that all day long as well. Yeah. And so we'll go into more of this in one of the future modules, just that long-term modeling is like, yeah, as Joe said, that $24 a month is not going to change your financial position, but this is that long-term play. This is accumulating properties now, making properties that are safe to buy now, and letting the time and the market do its thing. Markets appreciate, or the Denver market appreciates, rents go up. Your, Your mortgage cost stays the same. Your rents go up, you have a bigger profit. And so if you acquire a few of these properties, you run them well, you're patient. Well, in 10 to 20 years, you can build a lot of wealth. And we'll talk a lot more details about that in the future module. All right, so that's it for uh, the two spreadsheets I wanted to cover. Um, so just to round out this PowerPoint as a reminder, if you need, or if you want to see up-to-date deal analyses, and a lot more we talked about now, more in depth, go to the website, denverinvestmentrealestate.com, click find the deal analysis section, and you'll see all the deal analyses uh, listed there. You can read a blog, listen to a podcast, watch a YouTube video, pick your poison. And then going forward, what you need to do is start running properties and then make sure you, you have someone that knows what they're doing critique the spreadsheet for you. So that's something I do for my clients. uh, Jeff, I know something to do for the people you work with as well. So that way, if you need someone that knows the process and knows how to run numbers, don't sit there and run 100 by yourself and figure out if it's good or not. Run three or four, get with me, get with Jeff, and have them review the spreadsheet. And that way, they give you feedback. All right. Well, everyone, thank you for listening. Jeff and Joe, I appreciate you guys hanging out today. Always. Thanks so much, Chris. Thanks, Chris. Hey, thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this episode. Now, if you have any questions or need clarification, shoot me an email. Or if you want to grab a physical book copy of The Ultimate House Hacking Guide, also send me an email. My email is chris at denverinvestmentrealestate.com. A couple other services that we offer, if you need help putting together your investment plan and buying your first or your next house hacking property, reach out to me. That's what we specialize in. If you need help with lending and financing, reach out to Joe Massey. That's his specialty. And if you need help in stabilizing and operating your house act property, reach out to Jeff White, as that's his specialty. Now, all their contact details in the show notes. If you have trouble funding them or you just want to keep it simple, shoot me an email. I'm happy to answer all your questions and also connect you with Joe, Jeff, or whoever you need to talk to. All right. We'll see you next episode.